0: And Lord, as we spend some time in your scripture this morning, I pray that your spirit would make clear to our hearts the things you want each one of us to hear, no more and no less. And Lord, for Joseph, half a world away, morning here but evening there, we pray that he is strongly encouraged today and that he's had a good day of fellowship with other believers there. We pray that he's encouraged by relationships he has with others who know you And that, Lord, he sees fruit as he's sharing the gospel in his corner of the world also. Pray for the YFC trip coming up, Lord, that the remainder of the funds would be raised for the bus trip and that it would be a life-changing trip for the kids involved, that they would meet you, not just have a good time, Lord, but meet you. In Jesus' name, amen. We finished Ruth, I think it was only last week. and. We'll do a few topical teachings uh, before uh, September when we'll start another series. Sorry, as I regroup here, I'm still regrouping. Uh, several years ago, Kathy and I got a Christian newsletter, and I read it, and I was so excited by it, that the story on the cover that I shared it with Kathy, and, and the difference in our reactions was immense. I still think of it today because of this, and... Uh, this was the the story. Uh, a guy we'll call Bob. Bob was a Christian. Uh, he was a traveling preacher. And Bob is up on stage at a large gathering sharing the gospel and teaching. And his wife, we'll call her Gladys, is in the audience with Bob on the trip. Do you know what I'm talking about? And... Uh, Bob falls on the stage, and people don't know what's going on, and they rush up to check on him, and Bob has had a massive heart attack, and Bob is dying in front of the audience and his wife, and as people come helplessly forward, Bob dies and is gone, and I read this story to Kathy, and Kathy said, his poor wife. That was Kathy's response. You know what my response was? What a way to go! (laughs) Kathy is with Gladys in the audience watching her husband die, and I'm with Bob going to heaven. And I'm thinking, man, my last breaths on earth, I'm preaching the gospel, and then I see Christ face to face, what a way to go. Well, of course, the difference in our response was perspective. It was perspective. That determined the way we saw it and the way we thought about it, felt about it and the way we responded to the story. Let me give you another example. Biblical story. The life of Samson. you know, Samson, like many of the judges, if you knew this guy today, I mean, you would not be drawn to him. He was kind of a, what would I say? Um, kind of an unclean, unsavory individual. He was an appropriate judge in the days of the judges, the morally dark days of the judges. And, you know, he was supposed to be a judge or a deliverer of Israel, but he spent as much time cavorting with the enemy, consorting with the enemy, as he did fighting the enemy. And you know the story. Samson was a Nazarite from birth, so he didn't drink wine and he didn't cut his hair. But he meets that Delilah woman, and, of course, through her persistent pleadings and whinings, he finally tells her, I'm a Nazarite, and this is why I'm strong, and so, of course... She cuts his hair and he's taken captive by the Philistines and they gouge out his eyes and for sport they bring him and they have him turn a mill and then when they have a big celebration they bring him out because here was Israel's former uh, enemy who defeated them time after time. Here he is blinded, powerless and in fact the end of his life the Philistines are celebrating the victory of their God over Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they do that by bringing Samson in, of course, to display him, like the Romans would their prisoners, display him in the midst of their celebration hall, right? Celebrating Dagon and his victory over Yahweh. So here's the end of Samson's life. He's the laughing stock of the Canaanites. He lost his strength. He lost his hair. He lost his hope. And here he is. This is the end of his life. And of course, once he gets in there, he has a little lad next to him say, where are the columns that support this roof? And he asks God, he prays to God for one last time, one burst of strength, and he gives it to him and he pulls the columns down. The roof of the place falls in and everyone inside is killed, including, of course, Samson. Is it a tragedy or is it a triumph? On one hand, we look at it and we say, well, it's a tragedy because what a wretched end to a wretched life. On the other end, though, the other perspective, the text itself says Samson killed more Philistines, God's enemies, Israel's enemies, in his death than he had in his life. Triumph. You see, it all depends on your perspective. I guess what I'd tell you this morning is perspective is everything. Perspective determines the way you view any event in your life, it determines how you think about it, whether you laugh about it, or whether you cry and it determines how you respond. It's your perspective. How do you view it? What take do you have? From what vantage point are you looking at the things that go on? Your perspective determines all of that. I shared this next story with my uh, daughters, and uh, I'm gonna share it with you. I think it passed their test, so I think it's okay to share this. I asked them if it was too gross. Uh, they, They said it was okay. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that you're a grape, and you can be white or red, it doesn't make any difference, but you're a grape in a cluster on a vine in Sonoma, uh, I guess it's Sonoma County, California, and it's gorgeous out there, and you're on a hill, and it's well cultivated, and it's summer, and you've got all the sun and all the shade you need, and the the, uh, soil is well tilled, and you're watered, you know, and, and it's a good place for a grape to be. Life is very good. It's the sunny California life. What could be any better? So you're growing and in the morning you hear the birds chirping and you wake up and you're next to your siblings in the evening when it cools down a little bit and you're snuggled in nice and warm and, and life is just very good. And the farmer, he makes sure that the molds don't grow on you and he keeps all the bugs that would injure you, he keeps them away and, and life's good and what could be any, any better, no problems. And then one day, Jessica, you hear this strange sound. You don't know what it is. And then this machine that you've never seen before, it comes along and it cuts you off with the rest of your cluster and you fall into this hamper. And you're being squished by all the other grape clusters lying on top of you and you can hardly breathe. It's terrible to be a grape, Dan. And then your hamper gets thrown onto this conveyor belt. And as you're taking up this conveyor belt, you're sprayed by all this water and then you're thrown into this big vat. And you were squished before, it's even worse now. And as you're laying in there wondering what's going on, the pressure starts mounting because you're in a wine press. And the pressure's growing more and more. And you're being squeezed and squashed until you burst. And all your grape juices burst out and join all the other grape juice from all the other grapes. Is it a tragedy? You're a grape! You're supposed to be squashed. That's your end. That's what you're made for in life. You're going to be squashed. Or you could be dried in the sun, couldn't you? If you were great, this story is a tragedy. But if you're a wine connoisseur, or if you're a little boy with his red box of sun-made raisins, this is a happy ending. You see, it just depends on your perspective. Depends on your perspective. I ran track at K-State for two years, and when I was in high school, I actually loved basketball more than track, but I wanted to go to a big school, not a small school. So I took a scholarship at K-State to run track rather than play basketball at a junior varsity, or junior varsity, junior college. Anyway, uh, I had run track, and I was pretty successful in high school, but I got to the Big 8 level, and my workouts changed overnight, you know, as a freshman coming in here the fall workout. Fall is conditioning time for uh, track athletes, and this means lots of over-distance running, grueling. You know about this, Julie. Oh, man, what a wake-up. I thought I was in shape. I wasn't. You know, I got to K-State, and we started the fall conditioning workouts, and then the weight, weight training was part of that, and I'd never been that serious about weight training anyway. You know, I was hurting for two and three weeks. I was hurting big time, Uh, But the funny thing was, as time went on, I couldn't uh, believe over time what a distance, uh, what a difference this incredibly painful, tearing, grueling uh, period of training did for me. I didn't realize I could run as long or as hard or as fast as I did because of the training that I got there at K-State in the fall. And I didn't ask for it, and if I would have known what was coming, I I wouldn't have wanted it either. But it was looking back, I realized what a difference, this grueling, tearing, difficult period of fall conditioning workout, what it did for me. So over time, my perspective on the workouts changed. And I would not say that I actually looked forward to Tuesday and Thursday's hill runs. But I knew that come winter, when the indoor season started, I knew what kind of shape I would be in and that I'd be good to go. And so I didn't necessarily love the pain or the difficulty, but I did love what it produced. And my attitude about the workouts themselves changed because my perspective changed over time. So come sophomore year and training for the same thing, I didn't dread those workouts. I knew it would be tough. I knew it would be painful, especially on the first few weeks. I knew it would be difficult, but I knew what it would produce. So that was okay. So I went in with a different perspective. The training became acceptable. The pain was okay because I knew what it was going to do for me. And as you and I face the challenges and the workouts of life, it's the perspective we bring to that that determines how we think about it, whether we laugh or cry, and how we respond to the challenges and the workouts we face. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1. And James isn't a masochist, but listen to what he says. Consider it or count it, add it up, figure it out. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Various, meaning there's all kinds and trials. Difficult, challenging circumstances. Not Saturday afternoon in the park. Difficult times. Why? Because knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing, the proving, the trial, the refining of your faith produces endurance, just like an athlete. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This trial will produce endurance in you, as you gain God's perspective on it. And the endurance is going to make you perfect and complete. And it's not that while any of us are on earth, we're never morally perfect, obviously. But it's the thought that we grow up into the person God means us to be. We're mature, would be another way to say that. That the trials make us mature and complete. That's what the trials in our life are meant to do. So James says, like the track athlete, it's training. Think of it as training, and then realize it will produce in your life endurance. Trials will. Difficult times will. Challenges, things you didn't want and didn't ask for, will produce endurance. In Hebrews 12, it says a little bit of the same thing. This is a different perspective, though. This is uh, speaking like a father training his children. And it says, of fathers they disciplined us. Now the term discipline, don't think uh, necessarily negative. This isn't necessarily a spiritual spanking as it were, that you've done something wrong, but discipline in the sense of training. A wider use here for the term. They trained us, earthly fathers did, for a short time it seemed best to them. But he, God the Father, your heavenly Father, trains us for our good, that we may share his holiness. He has a purpose in mind. Holiness. All discipline, all this kind of rigorous training that God puts us through, at the moment when it happens, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, painful, sometimes excruciating. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In this letter, we're hearing, like James, there's trial. Count it joy because it produces endurance and it makes you more of what you're supposed to be. Here, it's kind of the same thought. It's training. And when you're in it, it doesn't seem like what you want. It's not joyful. It's sorrowful. It's painful sometimes. It's difficult. We don't revel in the thing, but we realize afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, oftentimes you'll face a situation in which you start, you go into it, and things don't get better, they get worse, and you don't know where a thing going to end. But when you come through the other end of the tunnel or the difficulty, whatever it is, you look back on your life and you realize, God has changed me in ways that would not have happened if I hadn't gone through it. God has matured me. He's refined me. He's tried my faith. That's James' perspective. And it's Hebrews' perspective. Training, joy in training or discipline. Listen to Paul's perspective in Romans 8. Paul says, Romans 8, 28 and 29, he says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who know God, to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God causes all things exclusive We've talked about this before. All things, nothing's ruled out here. All things work together for good. He says in verse 29 what the good is, whom he foreknew, that is, God the Father, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's goal in your life and mine is that we bear the mark, the image, of his Son, Jesus, If you think back to Genesis 1, do you remember what God says before he creates man? Let us make man in our image, the divine image. And what happens in the garden? The divine image is marred through sin. You know, all of us, no matter how attractive or whatever, successful, we're pitiful and pathetic compared to what we were supposed to be. So God starts over in his son... And now he's recreating his likeness again. And it's not through the first Adam, Genesis. It's through the second Adam, Jesus. So now he looks down at us and we're part of a new creation. So when we're born again, God takes this marred image, which is you and I, and he doesn't make it over. He gives us a brand new life, the life of his son. And now we've got a problem because we've got an old life and a new life in the same body. And God's job, the course of his things in our life in this world, is to squash the old one and raise the new. He doesn't clean up those old creatures. He crucifies them with his son so that they can bear his son's likeness. So God wants to see the image of his son reflected in you and I. And sometimes that's a painful process because we're sinners, and we have this natural bent and propensity to sin, the opposite of all that God is, and what He's like, and what He desires for us. So, He's got His work cut out for us, but He's up to it. Sometimes we're not sure we are. When He takes us through these training exercises, when He puts us in the wine vat, we're not sure that this is what we put in for, but that's okay. He says he's going to take all things that happen in your life and mine and he'll use them for the positive outcome, which is making us after the image of his son. You know, then in death, when we shed this body, we're free entirely of the old sinful nature. We'll get a new body in the future and then we will become, we will be what we're becoming all the time. We'll be perfectly sanctified and holy, as Hebrews talked about. He's making us holy like himself. But as long as we're on the earth, we're in the training exercise phase. We're not there. We never arrive while we're on planet earth. Listen to the end of this passage in Romans 8, Paul's talking about. He says, God's going to use everything in your life to make you like his son. And at verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now, frankly, most of you and I will not face these kinds of difficulties in our life. Famine, frankly, I've never been that hungry. Uh, Nakedness, no. Sword, no. Imprisonment, nothing like that. But what about uh, troubled marriages? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can a troubled marriage? Can a business failure? Can a moral failure? Can a betrayal by a friend or a family member? I mean, you can add, just fill in the blanks. In your life, whatever you've experienced, just fill in Paul's. Those were his, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But you and I don't face the same things, but we'll face similar things in our life. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Anything you've experienced in your life, you can throw into this list in verse 35. Paul says, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death, All day long, and literally this was of course true for the early Christians, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This sounds like loss and failure. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This sounds a little odd, does it not? He says, nakedness, peril, sword. Again, fill in the blank with anything you've experienced. How do we overwhelmingly conquer in those situations in Christ? What what in the world is Paul talking about? It can't be necessarily that physically we conquer. It doesn't even mean in this context that you live, that you survive. But it's that God's purpose in your life and mine is fulfilled and is furthered even in all these very negative training exercises. See, because God's not saving us on the earth, He's killing us on one hand to make us more like His Son. So His purposes are never thwarted, ever. So that even if you die, what's the worst someone can do to me? They can kill me. I'm ready. I volunteer. Because for me to die means I go, I'm free of my sinful nature, the sinful impulses that I hate. I get to go be with the Lord, pleasure and joy forever. It sounds like a, Good proposition to me. That's the worst that can happen to me. So all things are serving God's purpose in your life and mine in making us more like His Son. So it doesn't matter how bad it looks like that we're losing, we're winning. God's purposes are still being advanced in your life and mine. Now, if we're after comfort in this world, and frankly, most of the time, I'm, I'll take comfort any day. I never pray for... Uh, my training exercises, I never ask God for more patience because I know it's coming. I don't have to ask for it. See, my dad, that Hebrews 12 says, if you're not disciplined or trained by God the Father, you don't belong to him. See, he's proactive. He's a better parent than you and I are. He engineers these things for us. There's nothing that happens in your life or mine that he does not cause or allow. If God is omnipotent, has all power, as he does, then nothing happens in your life and mine that he doesn't either cause or allow. He's proactive. He will take you and I through training exercises. If my goal is comfort in this life, then I'm in for a rude awakening. I'm in for disappointment. And see, this is where perspective comes in. What's my perspective? What am I after? Lord, I want comfort and easy life. Blue skies and green lights. That's my perspective, When these training exercises come up, guess what? I shrivel with the grapes. I'm shriveling in the sun. This is not what I want. But if I say with James or with Paul, Lord, this painful, hurtful, tearing, difficult circumstance has arisen. And this is not what I want. It's not my preference. But I understand that you've promised to use this in your program to train me and to mature me and to make me more in the image of your son, Lord, Lord. I get it, okay. It's not that we're hugging the pain, we're not masochists, and God isn't. But we understand that he'll use it. And remember that in a world that has rejected God himself and crucified the Son of God on a cross, this is an upside-down world. So the way up is down, and the way to life is death. It's an upside-down, topsy-turvy world. So when we see the difficult thing, God wants us to share his perspective. And frankly, you know, I think for most of us, this is where we fall down. God introduces us to this training cycle. Let's say we flunk a class or we're after a job and it doesn't come through or we don't have enough money that month for that month's bills or, I mean, it can be a hundred things. And our immediate response is... We're uncomfortable. This isn't what we wanted. God wants us to take the perspective that he has, trade our old perspective for the new one. This really requires some spiritual maturity on our part because we have to be willing to say yes to God's plan. We have to be willing to die to what we were so that we can live to what he calls us to be. And I think it's at that decision level. It's at that point, I think, that most of us fail in this. See, we're hugging the comfort. And we, we don't want to engage in the training, but it's going to happen anyway. You know, you can come easier, you can come hard, but you're going to come, that, that kind of thing. You're going to come. So how much better for us if with James and Paul and the writer to Hebrews, if we say, okay, Lord, I get it. You're not after my comfort. You're killing me so that I can really live. You're squashing me so that I can be made into what you really wanted me to be all along after his own image. But we have to change our perspective about what we want and what we're after. We have to agree with God that his will is better than ours and let go of our desire for comfort over all else to the discomfort that will produce holiness and Christ-likeness. Uh, Paul, the one who wrote this Romans passage, uh, this was a guy who'd seen both sides of life. Let me read to you from uh, Philippians 3. Listen to what his perspective was before he was a Christian. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. That doesn't sound too positive to me, but this was meaningful for Paul. Kevin, it doesn't make me feel good. I don't know. But anyway, it was something to boast in. Circumcised the eighth day like a good Jew should be of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, I was at the highest level of religious society. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. This is Paul's experience before he comes to Christ. He said, life was good. I'm at the top of the heap. I am at the top of the pyramid. I'm everything any good Jew would want to be. Life is good. I'm there I've arrived. And then Jesus knocks him off his horse in Acts chapter 9 and blinds him so that he can see the light of life and introduces him into this entirely new world. And, you know, before he was in Israel and life was good, he's at the top of the religious heap. He, has, he leads a good, comfortable life. Listen to what he traded it in for after Jesus knocks him off his horse. Second Corinthians 11. this became Paul's experience after he came to Christ. Comparing himself to others here, he says, "Far more labors, far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jew 39 lashes, a leather whip that would cut your back open. Expose all your flesh. Three times I was beaten with rods, beaten black and blue. Once I was stoned. This is recorded in Acts. They stoned him. Uh, he, Frankly, he may have been dead, stoned to death. This may have been when Paul actually goes to heaven. A night, uh, let's see, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, stranded in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, fellow Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, no safe haven for Paul, dangers in the city, dangers in the country or wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, betrayed. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was his experience as a Christian. This is what he traded the soft pillow in for. This is what he traded his top-of-the-heap, soft, comfortable, respectable life in for. And now what was his perspective to the difficulties of life and to this kind of life that he lived? Listen to what he says back in Philippians 3 again. Looking back, Second Corinthians kind of life and experience. Now looking back, he says in Philippians 3, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me before, those things I used to covet and find value in, those things that were my goal, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. His perspective changed. What he found value in before has no value now because he counted it loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss, anything you could offer him, anything he could imagine. He says, I count loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, betrayed, imprisoned, you name it. He says, guys, anything that used to be comfortable, it's, it's nothing anymore. These things, no problem. Why? I count all things lost, in view of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. He says at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He continues, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I love these next two verses. He says, I haven't arrived yet. I've been through a lot, and God has matured me, but I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. I'm pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul got it. He understood God's program for his life. He understood that all these things, in the end, weren't that important compared to knowing Christ personally and being conformed to his image. He understood what God's program in his life was. His perspective was entirely changed. And so even though he went through a life of difficulty such that you and I will probably never know, he could still say, I look at that and I say, it's nothing. Because what I've gained is so much better. I've gained Christ, and I'm being conformed to his image. And this is good. Life is good. I'm happy with this. Anything else is a distant second fiddle. In fact, he calls it rubbish. Debris like you'd sweep off a plate into the garbage compared to knowing Christ. Sean quoted a a verse a week or two ago from Job that I want to revisit. Those guys are all New Testament perspective. Let me give you an Old Testament perspective about this suffering thing too. I don't say I've arrived at Job's conclusion here in Job 23, but I would like to emulate it and listen to what Job says. As he's coming to grips with the loss of his family, his health, his wealth, you know the story, he's in terrible, terrible pain, and straits, Very difficult. Job 23, at verse 2, speaking of God, he says, His hand is heavy despite my groaning. I'm Job. I'm calling out to God. A little relief, please, Lord. I'm groaning out. But his hand is heavy on me like that grape. He's being crushed. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Job says in my distress, I'm looking for God. Why? Well, I'd present my case before him. I'd fill my mouth with arguments about how he's blowing it, how this isn't what he should be doing in my life. I would learn the words which he would answer. I'd give him an argument that he couldn't refute. I'd tell him why my life should be different than it is. I'd perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? Would he rebuke me? Would he answer my arguments just by... By his power rebuking me? Oh no, surely he would pay attention to me. See, if only I could get his ear for a little while, I'd change his mind about what he's got going on in my life. There the upright would reason with him. We'd help him understand the error of his ways. I would be delivered forever from my judge, from this judgment I'm going through. I go forward looking for him, but he's not there. I go backward, but I can't see him. When he acts on the left, I can't behold him. He turns on the right, I can't see him. See, Job's saying, Lord, if only I could corner you. If I could find you, then I'd tell you how it really is. And you wouldn't just blow me off. You'd change your mind about what you've got going on in my life. You'd see. My way is better. But, verse 10, but this is his conclusion. But Job says, I can't find him. I can't change his mind. I can't corner him. But he, God, knows the way I take. I can't see him, but I know he sees me. I can't find him, but I know he's found me. And when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Job says, I looked around in this calamity. I'm trying to find God. I want to change his mind about what's going on. I can't find him. And so eventually I give up, and I come to this conclusion. I can't find him, but he's found me. And he is going to use these things to make me like gold. That was Job's perspective. I'll come forth as gold. None of us will suffer the losses, I'm sure, that Job did. And in the midst of his loss and his pain, his confusion, you know, a lot of times things happen in your life, even if they're not that painful, you're just confused. Lord, what are you doing? Why is this happening? How can this serve your purposes in my life? Job didn't understand either. But he said, this one thing I know. I know God has this stuff under control. And that after I come through this, it'll be like gold. I'll be like gold. Now, another story. Imagine that you're a grape-sized chunk of gold and you're buried down in the earth. And this is a good life for a chunk of gold. There's a little sand next to you on one side, maybe a little granite too, a little organic matter maybe smattered in there, you know. But you're down nice, the temperature's even all year round, 56 degrees. Life is good. No problem. And this is your existence. Not bad, not bad. And then one day you hear this strange sound. And you don't know what it is. And this big scoop rips the earth out from next to you. And all of a sudden, in your dark world, there's blinding light. And then you're scooped up in this big shovel. And like the grape and the hamper, you're thrown into a dump truck. And it was okay before, but now you're being crushed by all the other ground and dirt and ore that's piled on top of you. And before you can figure out what's going on, you've been thrown onto a conveyor belt too. And the conveyor's rumbling along, and as you're rumbling along, it's getting a little lighter. It's getting a little warmer. And that feels okay for a second, but then it's getting a little uncomfortably warm. And then your conveyor belt ride ends, and you're dumped into this seething, boiling cauldron of heat and fire. And what was comfortable now has become uncomfortable. And as the heat gets hotter and hotter, you know what? You start losing control of yourself, you little chunk of gold. And you're trying to hold your molecules together, and it's not working. And like the grape being crushed, you lose it entirely. And you know what? You give up, and you melt. Triumph. Or tragedy. Which is it? You know, when the grape's crushed, it gives up its juice, and this is a good end for a grape. You know, gold, though, fire can't hurt gold, can it? When you melt the gold, you just take what's there and you make it more pure than it was before. In fact, you release it from its impurities. You release it from its impurities. The gold, no matter how hot the fire gets, can't hurt the gold. How long it burns, gold stays gold. But the fire, the trial that makes it lose its hold on life, separates it from the impurities that it's connected to. Now this gold in the ground is still gold, but it's tied to all these other elements that aren't gold. So it's a mixed bag. It's not what it could be. We could say it's not what it should be. But when it goes into that that, and it's melted, all the impurities are separated from the gold, and the gold becomes what it's supposed to be all along, pure gold, released from all its impurities. There's a great book, and I actually tried to get a hold of these to give these out today. I couldn't. Uh, This is one of the best little booklets I have ever found or read on a perspective of suffering, This is called Comfort for Troubled Christians. It's written by a guy named J.C. Brumfield, who I trust is with the Lord by this time. This was copyrighted in 1961. He uses this same analogy. In fact, he quotes from Job and Malachi about this sense of fire and gold and ore in the life of a Christian. And he points out a couple interesting things. One is that, of course, the fire can't hurt gold. The other is that when the refiner is sitting over the gold, that the refining pot, the heat is up, and the ore has all been melted, he knows when it's been hot enough, long enough, because as the impurities rise, they're pulled off the surface, and it says when he can see his image in the molten gold, he knows it's been purified. The work is over when he sees his image reflected in the gold surface. The dross, the impurities are removed, and he can see his image in the shiny surface. And that's exactly what God does in your life and mine. So the gold may not be asking for fire, but that's what it gets. And in the end, the fire may feel painful at the time, but it can't hurt. The gold you cannot. And in your life and mine, oftentimes we go through situations, sometimes they're lengthy, sometimes they're short, but we just feel like it's too hot, it's too long, it's too hard, it's too difficult, I misunderstood, this isn't what I want, etc., etc., etc. See, none of those things, it doesn't matter what it is. Romans 8 makes that clear. All things serve God's purpose. Nothing is excluded. So no matter what the fire looks like in your life and mine, God says he'll use it to make us like himself, which means relieving us from our impurity and making us more holy like his son. All things work together for good. And that's what he's doing. He's purifying gold. If our perspective is comfort, doesn't make any sense and isn't what we want. But if our perspective is God's perspective, Lord, I don't like the heat, but I understand what you're doing, we can say yes, and it changes the way we look at these situations. You know, frankly, this is the difference between having joy and peace in the midst of a situation, not just afterwards. You know, a lot of times when we're in the midst of things, we, we say to ourselves, well, later... I'll be at peace, or later I'll have God's joy. You know, biblically, no matter what the situation is, we should be able to have Christ's joy and peace no matter what's going on around us, no matter what. But it's because we're trusting God that he's doing this kind of work. Lord, we don't like the pain. We don't like what's going on, but we understand you're using it. And so, Lord, we're at peace with that. Lord, we have your joy because we know you're with us. Lord, we have your joy because we know you're making us more like yourself. And we'll know you more intimately because of this thing. So we count even our comfort as loss because we get more of you and you get more of us. That's what he's after. That's what he's after in your life and mine. So, as you look at your life, whatever's going on, and this isn't just for today, you know, this will stand you in good stead anytime. When something arises, catch yourself. When something you don't want happens, when your plans are suddenly changed, when life throws you a curve suddenly, just stop before you even start to respond. You know, emotionally, a lot of times we're just the horses out of the barn. Our emotions are gone before we stop. But stop and say, Lord, what are you doing? How do you want me to respond to you in this situation? What's going on? I know you'll use this for my good. I'm trusting you for it. Lord, help me conduct myself like gold in the fire, trusting you to know how much heat and how long so that you get what you want, more of me, and I get more of you. It's perspective. It's our perspective that changes, absolutely turns your experience upside down. So triumph, Paul says that list, nakedness, peril, famine, sword, he says we triumph. It looks like tragedy, but it is in fact, in God's perspective, triumph. And for you and I in the midst, what looks like tragedy can be, and I would argue should be, triumph. Trials are turned to gold. And it's just the perspective we have during these things that I think that's the area we need to work on. Lord, help us to see it as you see it. Help us to share your desire to, for your image to be reflected in us and for us to get more of you and for you to get more of us. So when work's not going the way it should be, or when your spouse isn't treating you the way they're supposed to, Or when your kids aren't turning out quite the way you thought they would or should. Or you're having trouble paying the bills. I mean, any and every difficult, painful trial, circumstance, etc. Say, Lord, what's your perspective? How can I honor you in this? Lord, I want your peace and your joy in this. And I know you're turning the trials into gold. I know I'm a runner and I'm in training, I know I'm gold, being refined. See, it's all, it's all perspective. And the perspective you choose to see the circumstances through will determine how you view them and how you respond. So if we'll agree with God on his perspective and say yes to his will, we're part of the process. We don't come along kicking and screaming. We're with him hand in hand, going where he wants to take us, becoming the people he means us to be. And that's with Paul, Lord, even my comfort. and The other things I wanted, they're rubbish compared to your program for me, which is giving me more of you and giving more of myself to you, seeing Christ's image reproduced in me. Well, let's pray. Lord, it is often easy to talk about these things, We can wax poetic about pain when we're not in it. And we can say quickly that we'll trust you next time. Lord, help each of us in the trials we face now or the difficulties coming tomorrow or next week or next month. Lord, help us to remember to gain your perspective. Moses said uh, to give us a heart of wisdom, to teach us to number our days so that we'd be wise. That's the kind of thing we need, Lord. We want to gain your perspective. We want to see life and the world as you see it. We want to agree with your goodwill of creating, recreating the image of your Son in us. And Lord, it's often a painful, tearing process. Difficult things, things that really are hard or hurtful. But help us, Lord, to remember Job. Help us to remember that you really do turn trials into gold, that it is a process that does produce joy and peace and holiness. Thanks for loving us as you do. Lord, thanks for sending your son to die in our stead to give us life. Help us to gladly say yes to your will to recreate yourself in us. Have your way in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.